The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab, a media collective committed to creating a more candid dialogue about spirituality, culture, and the world. Are you tired of Senate Republicans and their corruption in the name of conservative white Jesus? Do you wish Ruth Bader Ginsburg would be granted special permission to come back to Earth and haunt the homes of Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett? So do we. Come on and sit on the back pew and let's talk about it. What's up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas, and today we've got a special episode for you. Earlier this week, we had a discussion about politics, faith, and the challenges of being faithful in this American democracy. At the end of our second segment, I shared that it was a really challenging segment to record. We tried three or four times, and at the end of the day, we settled for an extremely tempered version of our conversation that was easier to edit. Well, today we're back with the second pour and a mostly unedited second take of our conversation. We wrestle with the same exact questions in a slightly different way. I won't give any more disclaimers and you can just listen in for yourself. After our conversation, stay tuned for the rest of Malcolm's interview with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. There's some really, really good stuff in there. And one more thing. If you're liking what you're hearing so far, go ahead and hit that like, that subscribe, or that follow button and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Enough of that. Let's get into it. I would agree with everything that you all are saying, and I want to be clear. Like, I'm not attempting to suggest um, that there's anything right or wrong happening. I think I'm attempting to note what I perceive to be a phenomenon. And I want to frame this liturgically, liturgically being worship, who and what we worship, how we worship. Um, so for me, um, it's not as simple as saying what comes first, the chicken or the egg or the politics or the faith. Um, it's a matter of saying um, everything that we do is worship and everything that we do has a liturgy. Um, and at the end of the day, I think we are actually in a place where the world in which we live, there are multiple religions that we all practice. American democracy is one of them. Now, I might make some other claims about um, <laughs> uh, American democracy positioning itself as the king of kings, lord of lords, president of presidents, religion of religions, in order to an organized society, but that's another conversation. I think the conversation we're having now, um, I'm most interested in trying to figure out in what way does our um, do our political commitments also function as a type of religion that we practice in the public sphere? Sure, they may grow out of a commitment to a particular faith, but at the point that we start to vocalize them, there are societal communal implications. And because we're not in a theocracy or a government that's organized around religious ideals, at least not technically, um, then there, then there's for me always going to be a distinction between my political commitments and my faith commitments. Um, because for me personally, the moment that I start to only organize my stuff around religion, I am doing the exact same thing as conservative folks are doing. And there could come a day, a point in time where in my exercising those political commitments in the public sphere actually does harm to someone else. But it's coming from a really good place. I think I try to keep that distinction for myself uh, to never get to the place where I become the thing that I despise. I was talking to some people last night and part of what I was saying is like, it's uh, the reason that it's a religion, the reason that it functions as religion is because that's how it set itself up. If we think about um, aspects of religious life, um, I would say that paying our taxes is a form of tithing and offering and penance. 
Um, I would say voting is an act of sort of worshiping, going and doing something communally together for the sake of a larger goal. Um, I would say that the pomp and circumstance of um, the inauguration of the State of the Union. I mean, so we, I mean, David had a helpful example about the Pope speaking to a joint session of Congress, like that's a religious ceremony. And so I think I'm trying to suggest overall that this that democracy is a religious practice and Christianity is in bed with it. And Christianity, if democracy has positioned itself as number one, Christianity wants to be number two. Like the, the debate happened at Belmont, the president of Belmont, bless his heart, um, Belmont's right across the street from Vanderbilt University. And he would always say, you know, we're never gonna be the number one university in Nashville. That's always gonna be Vanderbilt, but we can be the best number two. And I feel like that's what Christianity's approach is. If democracy has been so effective in doing this, at least let us be the second in command. Yeah, but then I, I guess I wonder, what does it matter after that? When you s said this at the end, um, yes, this is why Christians shouldn't get together and just run a government together. That's why I like Barber, because he's looking for some kind of fusion of people who are getting together to make decisions about the governance of the world. So I, while my faith governs how I act in the political sphere, I do not think that, that I'm the only person who should be making decisions about that. I feel like it is a requirement that I am connected to people with no faith or who come from different faiths, like that who come from different backgrounds, that that's essential to what it means to um, live in the political sphere. Um, I think it might be two different conversations, but I think... No, I, think I think it's the same. I mean, I hear what you're... It's, I think it's the exact same conversation. Well, I mean, and so this is how I would maybe wrap all of this up. I would argue that, Katie, the assumptions that you make about wanting to craft a a just and equitable and flourishing community with people who are different from you, that idea is a fundamentally Christian idea. This is also just like an exercise in the history of the Enlightenment, right? Like the idea that we would choose to form a pluralistic society and value voices of people who are different than us, that's a theological idea. And it's not, it's become so ubiquitous, right? I mean, the enlightenment was so successful that we've forgotten what a contentious and frankly unprecedented shift that is in human history. What worries me is that we now no longer have the set of underlying religious convictions that make that assumption safe. So what, I mean, if, if I'm not a Christian, why the fuck do I care what you think? then it just becomes an exercise in power, right? I can exert my will over you or you can try to exert your will over me. But I think that's the point that we're missing here is that democracy fundamentally is derived from Christian ideals. But I mean, I think, I think that's for me, like I think the reason that I go to the place of saying, yes, it's fundamentally religious. I don't know if I would call it fundamentally Christian. I think that Christianity was the strongest organizing factor, but I can't get away from the fact that it was this Christian ideal that led to the founding of a democracy that didn't include women, that didn't include black people. And so like there's a way in which something else is always going to be at work. And even if it's the if even if you have the best of intentions, if you come from um, England and you tired of being oppressed by England and them owning your shit and taxing your tea, and then you want to set up your own thing over here in America, 
it still is. I mean, there's a good value in that. I don't want to be dominated by another country, by another group of people, but I'm still going to bake in some domination into that. So I think that's part of what I'm struggling with is like, if it's, yeah, I think, I think I'm struggling with the notion that, um, it is Christianity that actually allows us. Cause I don't, I don't think Christianity actually has baked into it. This notion that you're going to live. I think Judaism actually does more so than Christianity. Um, Which is why I wrote last <coughs> night, the Judeo Christian tradition of agape. I like, I mean that, and I, and Brandon, like your, your point is well taken. I, you will never hear me argue that American democracy got it right. Right. So, I mean, I, I hear you a hundred percent on that. But I do think that the underlying claims that are baked in, they like they they are Christian claims. They're white male Christian claims, is what yes, I would say. Yes, yes, yes. I okay. I, and, yes. I, and that's not Un, bad or good. Un, that's just un, unpack that for me. What is what does that mean? Because because I I mean I also think like that's the same claim that Reverend Doctor King makes. That's the, like. No, it is, but it's, but it's him calling, it's, it's actually King calling them into the fullness of what they claimed. They never intended to claim and what, what we're saying. Correct. Like no. what Katie has said, she, like Katie's version of Christianity that allows for and makes space for um, other religious voices, other cultural voices was never the mindset of Brandon, those who I agree the with you. I know. I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. I hear that. But what I'm saying is the idea, the intellectual history that makes all of that possible, that makes the founding fathers possible, that makes King possible, all of that is a Christian idea. I think that we're, we're taking for granted so much that throughout human history and also just like fucking human nature, like, like does not substantiate itself. These are contested claims that we've now just decided to take for granted. And I think a lot of the fracturing in our democracy today is around the fact that there, we no longer hold a core set of convictions. And so all of these assumptions that we've just baked in, we realize how contested they are all of a sudden. But I think that's part of what I'm trying to suggest. Like, so like, I think I'm trying to figure out if there's a role for a pragmatic government, right? If, they, if, if, if we're just looking at... Um, not theoretical, ideological, theological claims, but what is the role of a government that merely has pragmatism and the function of organizing life as its goal? If that's, it, is it possible? I would argue it is not. So then my, then what I'm trying to actually suggest is that we do need to figure out what are a set of communal ideals. Can that be informed by different religious perspectives? Yes, but the work that America American democracy has done to position itself at the center of our lives, utilizing religious language, utilizing Christian theological concepts now needs to be taken to its logical end. And that needs to be, that's necessarily divorced from a faith commitment. And I, th I think I'll say this and then I'll shut up. I think that if we believe we can form political structures based purely on logic, then we're engaging in a fool's errand. And I, I mean, I, Trumpism to me is like exhibit a, the final proof of that. Brandon, you're right. The final proof I mean, of what? Of the fact that our political life together is fundamentally emotional. It's fundamentally tribal and it's fundamentally illogical. 
And I'm saying, and yes. And so what I'm saying is you have to have a metaphysic. You have to have an appeal to something bigger to make sense of all of that. But the, but I don't, the, but the I don't think, but, 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 but that's, but Trump is not appeal. Like he's utilizing Christian religious symbolism at the very least to perpetuate the, I, the, the craziness and the I, chaos. Brandon, you want, again, I a hundred percent, you, you will not hear me try to challenge you or push back on that. But what I'm saying is your assumption that we can use logic and reason. That's not what I'm and shared. I, that's, I, I'm asking the question if that's what's necessary. Like, so if, so, my, so I, I'll, I'll word it differently. It's supposed to take it out. For, so let's, let's not do a binary between theory and pragmatism or theory and practice. Let's say Christianity and Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So is it the case that it's only Christianity from our vantage point that has the capacity, the bandwidth, the theology undergirding it that um, makes this sort of society possible? Or is it the case that Islam could do this as well? Is it the case that Judaism could do this? Could Buddhism do this? There's, there, are clear, there are other examples of religions that have been used to organize society and appeal to, uh, and, and perhaps in some instances more effectively so. So I think there's like, is it, I, I, I refuse to, I mean, not, not, I, it's hard for me to say that Christianity is the only religion or the religion that's positioned to do this most effectively. Can you give me an example of a liberal democracy not rooted in Judeo-Christian tradition? I can't, no, because we don't have one. Why is that? Because we don't actually, because it's, it's all an idea. So what we actually, like we don't actually have any liberal democracy in this world that's, that's structured around religion. We have ones, American democracy performs most effectively as that. Great Britain most effectively performs that, but not even America gets that right. I, Brandon, again, what I'm, I, you will not hear me challenge you about whether it's been lived out and substantiated and performed in accurate ways. A hundred percent. But that's I'm, what matters I'm with you. To me. Okay, I hear that. What I would say is. And again, 100%. I am, I am not trying to make the claim that America is a pure Christian country and we need to go back to, like, please hear me. I am not saying that at all. I don't hear that. But what I do think is that the idea of pluralism, the idea of one person, one vote, the idea of representative democracy is rooted in, and ultimately a Judeo-Christian theological claim. And I, I mean, and, and again, to me, like, this is just, it's a question of history. I mean, I got like, go back and look at recorded human history. There has never been a pluralistic society so at, have, any, so at any we, point we don't, we don't in world history. Disagree. So we don't disagree. You don't that's, dis where, that's where I started. You don't disagree. I guess my question is like, this is all fine and dandy, but what does that mean? Like right. what, because we, we've talked for about theory now for 35 minutes. What in the world does that mean for how it is that, that the, I mean, I think we can, we agree on the foundations of the country. What do we do now? Like, so if it's not possible, if what you're saying, Malcolm, is that it's not possible that we can get together and um, come up with some guiding principles for the world, then, then actually 
this it, it does need to come to its logical end. I don't know what that means. And but like we're at a practical impasse here. And, and I think that's what I keep, that, that's what I keep trying to boil down to is that like when it, when you, when we get on the ground, there's a way in which the theory, the theology, it it unravels entirely, and it ends up doing more damage and violence, whether that's progressive or liberal. Now, I would identify most with progressive religious claims that Christianity makes, but at the end, and I, I'm not one of these folks that's like it's all violent. Like I'm like I'm trying to say that the the outcome is rarely what we intend when we start something. So I'm trying to get that. that and what I, your question is where I'm trying to get. And Brandon, how, how would you answer that question? Like, I don't what, have the answer. What is, what is the way forward? I don't have the answer, but I think that the start is an acknowledgement of the fact that our political processes are religious and that that, and I think what we're both saying is that the foundation of that is Christianity. Like that's where I started. And I'm trying to say that that has to be now unraveled and we have to acknowledge in, in the history of the American democracy, I would call it an empire. Um, in all of that history, um, shit, I lost my train of thought. Can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I, so to me, I, th- I think we are saying very similar things. Um, and frankly, like probably want very similar things. But the question for me is if you remove untangle, unravel all of that, what are you left with? And the, I mean, the fundamental argument I'm trying to make is that when you unravel those things, you, you are unraveling liberal democracy to its core. That's that's the one string that you pull and the whole sweater comes apart. And what I'm saying And so what I'm so what I'm asking back to you is what takes its place? Cuz nature doesn't like a void. And so that's as part of what I'm getting at Malcolm is at the end of the day like the relationship between fear and power is also linked. So what I and you may this may not be your truth, but what I hear when other folks ask questions like that is fear. So if we do unlink these things, what the fuck happens to the world? How do we organize our lives? What do we do? I have the same concerns, but what I'm suggesting is holding tightly to a way of practicing our faith and our politics that doesn't uh, at least make an attempt to nuance that and distinguish between the two. Like that's also an exercise of power. So if our critique is of power, there's a way in which linking those things and refusing to, and not saying that you're refusing to, but but looking only backwards, looking only to, at history, like like and saying it, the foundation started in this way. Like we agree on the foundation. That's not the. But what do we do with it now? Is the question. I, and I don't know if I have an answer for that. What I would say back to that, I, and maybe I need to do some more interrogation and reflection of of my internal motivations. I don't think that question for me is rooted in fear. I think that question for me, frankly, is rooted in pragmatism. What the fuck do we have? If, I mean, if, if we take that away, what do we have left? And I, I mean, I, again, I look around at Donald Trump. I look around at 2020 America. And I think we have taken several steps down that path already. And, and I don't think any of us feel good about where that path is headed. But to me, 
I, I, I think that we are overestimating our ability to rationalize our willingness to work together with one another. And I, th- I think, frankly, a lot of political scientists would agree with me on that argument. So then, so then do we just ignore it and go on? I mean, I, because we can't live with what we have right now. And I, I mean, in, in my ideal, like, oh, if I could um, care about politics and think that it was functional anymore, I would say, okay, um, let's look at the Constitution. Let's, let's acknowledge where it got founded. And, and now let's say, okay, we've acknowledged it, but let's all commit to this. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think we're going to do that. I mean, when I look at the world today, I go, we have got so many different people with so many different needs. I don't think, I think, I think where we are now is the least functional our government has ever been. And I have thought it's been, it hasn't been functional for a very long time. And so I actually think we're done. And um, that's scary. I think that, um, I think we have to have a place to go, but we aren't even constitutional anymore. And, and so I, yes, like I'm sorry. I got it because I'm sorry, Rick. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But part of the part of the challenge for me is like we are at a place right now where, in the same way that I critique pastors and Baptist context, who and probably other contexts as well, but because we have the least amount of structure, when we critique a pastor because they go in and because there isn't structure, they take over all the things, and then you have a pastor, a fallen leader who's embezzling or sleeping with parishioners or all these things that we might say aren't okay to do, but the pastor can do that because the pastor is the authority in the space. Those who've been invested or vested with the authority to make sure that we remain constitutional, to ensure that we stay true to our principles and ideals are abdicating that responsibility actively. And they're doing it because of a faith commitment, allegedly. So I, so I think that's what I'm saying is where we are now, it does not work. And so back to what Katie said in the first episode, we need to sh- like fuck this shit up and start off. So, so the thing is, I don't think, I think they've abdicated their faith perspective. They've also abdicated anything that's related to politics. They are only desirous of maintaining their seat in, in Congress. If everybody, the, the only way it can happen other than Jesus coming back, which truly I believe is the only way it can happen is that, and I'm not sure that's going to, um, is that they all have to be willing to sacrifice their seat for the sake of the country, and not a single one of them is going to be willing to do that. Maybe, maybe I can be called a little pessimistic <laughs> um, because I actually agree with with what Brandon and Katie are saying. I just, I just, I just think that there will always be something baked in, right? If we tear it all down, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Um, if we tear it all down, and because it's not working, because those who have been entrusted with maintaining um, constitutionality and this democracy have abdicated their responsibility to do so. We need something else. I'm a little pessimistic that no, that in, a, in another, you know, 400 years, we'll, we'll end right back up here, um, but just in a different way. Like there's always gonna be a, a, a lens, there's always gonna be something baked in. Again, that shouldn't keep us 
from six. I, I hear, I hear what I think I hear David saying is, if we tear it all down, we have no plan, we have nowhere to go. Like, what do we have left? And and Brandon is saying it doesn't matter. That that fear shouldn't stop us from tearing it down or challenging the systems. And for me, I'm saying even if we tear it down, which I advocate for, let's do it. We're gonna be back here in 300 years, 400 years. All right, that's a wrap. We're gonna take a quick break and be right back with the rest of Malcolm's interview with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. I read, um, you wrote, I think not long after the election uh, in 2016, uh, that you believed the, uh, the election of Donald Trump was essentially a, a choice that white evangelicals had to make between their two identities, their, their whiteness and their evangelicalism. And you talked about, you know, sort of making this, this choice um, and really intentionally turning a, a blind eye to things that very clearly uh, contradicted or stood in the way of the, the gospel that they claimed uh, for themselves. Yeah, and let's not pretend that it's uh, uniquely about Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, uh, peculiar character that he is. Uh, and let's be clear, you know, Donald J. Trump is a character that the precious child of God who was born to Fred and Mary Trump plays. Uh, you know, there is a human being in there. And uh, I believe every human being is redeemable, but this brother has chosen to play a character. He played one on TV, you know, to, which is what kind of made him nationally famous, uh, what gave him a platform. And, and now he plays a character that the, uh, we, we have to be honest, the religious right was part of building the scenery for, uh, for 40 years. So, you know, this, uh, this ramped up uh, uh, explicit racism, uh, explicit strongman character, um, uh, you know, explicit anti-immigrant and, um, uh, you know, uh, anything is justifiable as long as I say that I'm pro-life. I mean, he didn't, he didn't write that script. He just plays the part. Uh, that was all set up for him. So I think a lot of the um, reckoning and, you know, while we're on the mourner's bench here, you know, a lot, a lot of what we got to deal with uh, in this come to Jesus moment uh, is not just that people made a choice for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, the people who made that choice, you know, were well set up for that choice. And we got to get up, we got to get behind that and get to the setup, you know, what created the conditions in which uh, someone uh, so uh, obviously offensive to our black Christian sisters and brothers uh, so obviously dangerous to so many of our Latino sisters and brothers um, is nevertheless celebrated by so many of our white sisters and brothers. See, that's a that that's the reality that we're dealing with, and um, and it's not just about him. You know, he he came along and he'll move on. But this this whole thing, this whole story that has set up to pit us against one another, that ain't going anywhere. Uh, so you talk very openly about being raised in a conservative Southern Baptist church in North Carolina. You also uh, worked for a, a brief time in Republican politics. Um, and I, I find those points interesting um, in part because they resonate actually with my own life. You talk about how your own views kind of changed over time. Um, I'm just really curious to hear you talk about your own 
I'm not sure if this is the word that you would use, but your own personal conversion or the the awakening, the change that happened in your life and, and how exactly that unfolded. Yeah, well, it certainly is a conversion and an ongoing one. Um, I think we got to get born again and again and again. Um, so I, I'm, I'm still a, a revivalist and a conversionist in that way. I was raised up by Baptists who taught me that, you know, Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. And um, I very much believed that as a young person, and I very much believe it still. Um, but what I didn't know at the time is that we were being targeted by a campaign to use our religion to line us up with the politics of a kind of reactionary conservatism. And the interest in that reactionary conservative, and by interest, I mean like the moneyed interest, the investment in that reactionary conservatism really didn't have a lot to do with advancing uh, anything central to the teaching of Jesus, but it had to do with a realization that, uh, well, of two things. One, that um, you couldn't bind white people together as a voting block after the civil rights movement if you tried to bind them together as white people per se, you had to find some other way to bind them together. I, that's my fundamental understanding of what the reactionary right of the late 1970s, early 80s was all about. It was about mobilizing white people to vote together, not in terms of their racial identity, but in terms of their religious identity. And so it became about voting your values, uh, about the danger of you know losing traditional values and, um, uh, and, and the whole pro-life issue became the main organizing tool around that. So, so that, that was part of, uh, of, of what was happening. But the, the other thing was that the, that the community I was raised in was largely uh, you, you know, poor and middle-class uh, rural farming people um, who frankly had uh, a considerable interest in uh, many of the issues, like personal interest, in many of the issues that uh, black and brown people had raised, that women's rights, the women's rights movement had raised, um, in terms of uh, our own well-being, right? Um, uh, expanding, you know, uh, access to uh, healthcare, expanding access to, you know, high-quality public education, uh, things that these movements were working for. So there was a there was a progressive movement that made real gains in the 60s and 70s and was pushing issues that would have actually, um, in many ways, helped our community. And what the reactionary uh, conservatives realized was that uh, it was critical to find a way not only to get us to vote with other white people, to, but to get us to vote against those interests uh, for, frankly, the corporate interests, uh, you know, the interest of the folks who own the power company, in, in that case, I just uh, laid out. Um, and, and, and you couldn't do that by just telling people, look, you know, these companies are really good. They're, you know, they've got your best interests in mind. Um, there had to be another way of talking about it. And so um, that was the alliance that was formed, this alliance between those corporate interests and this distorted religious narrative that told us that everything that was changing was actually going to hurt us and that we had to band together and fight back against, um, um, you know, the, the, the change. Because, you know, nobody, nobody pretended that things weren't changing. 
Um, I think what the reactionary right and the religious right that joined that movement uh, realized was that you could tap into the racial fears of white people who saw the world around them changing, uh, and you could actually get them to uh, ignore the things that would directly impact them and their families and, uh, and, and support, in many cases, uh, politicians and political movements that didn't benefit them by, uh, by telling them that what was happening was uh, taking away their, their culture and their way of life. Um, so I grew up in that and um, was very much uh, you know, brought into that narrative. And as somebody who wanted to do everything I could for Jesus, I just assumed that I needed to become uh, a Republican candidate for public office. That was kind of, you know, I, I wanted to ultimately be president. Uh, that's how I ended up working for uh, the senior senator from your state, uh, Strom Thurmond. And uh, working in Strom Thurmond's office in DC kind of opened my eyes to, uh, to, to, to this transition, right? I mean, here's a, a, a person who had actually been the, you know, Dixiecrat candidate for president. He, he had campaigned explicitly on preserving segregation and the Jim Crow South. Um, when uh, he realized that that was not, you know, politically viable, he crossed the Rubicon. He brought many Southern Democrats with him into the Republican Party, and um, and he had become this kind of, you know, uh, pro-life, um, uh, traditional values, uh, conservative Republican uh, who appealed to people like the community that I came from. And I began to realize that this was a sham. <laughs> that it was really a con job, not. Uh, and, and I wasn't walking away from my community. I was mad for my community, right? The, the, the more I saw what was going on, you know, sit, sitting on Capitol Hill, seeing that, you know, the people who showed up day in and day out, the people whose interests we were serving were, were military contractors. They were corporate lobbyists. Um, they were these, uh, you know, uh, right-wing organizations that had been uh, networked together in, in kind of shadowy ways. Um, but 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 bringing together you know uh, Second Amendment activists with religious right activists with these you know corporate lobbyists and and this is who the so-called pro-life uh, politicians were serving uh, that that's that's who you know wh whose interests we actually you know voted on when the votes came down in the Senate and um, that opened my eyes to the reality that uh, you know we we'd really been had. And I didn't, I, at the time, I didn't understand all that, nor did I understand that there was any alternative to it, but um, it turned my stomach enough that I decided I couldn't be part of it. And so I started looking for another way to be Christian in public. But it's also increasingly clear to me that white supremacy and the systemic inequality that is connected to it cannot continue without the support of white Christianity. That's a political reality in this country, right? There are enough people who see and understand that this is an existential issue and who have joined together and have you know, a political coalition that wants to change these things. The principal obstacle to that political coalition in this country is white Christians. And so, you know, to, to me, that, that makes the, the church's role all the more important. If the, if the problem can't be sustained without white Christians, then white Christians have a central responsibility in terms of uh, uh, addressing the problem. So 
another way of saying this is that this is about being good neighbors for sure, but this is also about Christian identity, right? And I, so I, I think we've got to grapple with the legacy of slaveholder religion in order to be Christian. But being Christian really, really matters because our uh, compromise and unwillingness to uh, address slaveholder religion has created a situation in which we are hurting other people and we are hurting ourselves. I wonder if you can talk specifically about the role of, of confrontation. I believe people can change. Um, I don't just believe it. I've seen it, you know, so, so, uh, so, but I do think that one of the great um, habits of slaveholder religion that has brought us thus far, you know, on this 400 year journey is a kind of um, Christian politeness that doesn't address this stuff. So my, sort of personal take on this is uh, I completely uh, understand that people don't agree with me. I'm happy to talk with anybody who, who wants to about uh, why uh, we must address the legacy of white supremacy and, and why that has real, you know, concrete consequences in terms of our personal and political decisions in the world today. Uh, I try to make those views very clear uh, and I am aware that, that, that being clear about that uh, uh, creates a kind of uh, animosity. Being clear about the need for Christians to challenge white supremacy and to challenge Christianity's complicity in white supremacy uh, has, in a very concrete sense, created uh, more uh, uh, personal attacks on me than you know, anything else I've ever done. I've, only death threats I've ever gotten in my life are for trying to talk to Christians about this stuff. It's these, you know, right-wing white nationalist so-called Christian militia groups that have said, you know, we're going to show up at your house by this date and kill you. <laughs> I mean, this is the sort of communications these folks send. I think we have to be clear. I think we have to uh, um, have an honest conversation in public about our complicity in what is wrong, and we have to uh, be willing to take real steps and measures toward uh, repentance and toward uh, trying to, you know, build a better world. We have to assume that there are people who, for you know, the reasons that they have, uh, are uh, actively opposed to that, and we have to, um, uh, you know, not even demonize those people. But to acknowledge that uh, you know they're they're also not um, they're, they're not going to flock over and, and join us anytime soon. So uh, I don't spend a lot of time you know sort of trying to argue, uh, in particular you know in this sort of media culture that we have uh, that exists to further exacerbate these divides and kind of is fueled by it. I'm interested in the long struggle to build a coalition of people who have a common understanding and who through uh, uh, education and uh, uh, relationship and the building of, you know, fusion friendships that are about taking risks and, and uh, 
uh, you know, partnering even with people who are unlikely allies. Uh, I'm interested in building the power that's necessary to change structures because all of the etiology, all of the lies, all of the wedge issues and the culture wars that are fought are fought to defend a system that keeps people in uh, unequal access to uh, the goods of our common life. And um, I really believe, and, I, and I've been persuaded by the work of people like Ibram Kendi, um, that if we change the structures of our common life uh, in ways that make society more equal for all people, that, that the um, ideologies and the, and the arguments that have been developed to justify those things uh, are secondary. That's, I think, the, um, the work that we have to do, not to argue and fight and try to prove people wrong who've been you know, caught up in an argument that's meant to justify the sorts of divisions we have, but to, um, but to build with those who can see and to always be open to new people seeing in new ways how we have to challenge those systems in, in changing them. Uh, I think we make the tired arguments somewhat irrelevant. I know uh, many folks who are engaged in the work of social justice, who are, are trying in a variety of different ways to, to live authentically in response to the claims that the gospel has on their lives. And that can be a, a challenging and a draining and a frustrating and at times even a hopeless prospect. And so I, I just, I'm wondering if, if we can end our conversation with a, a reflection from you about your own spiritual life, about the, the practices that you have cultivated, the, uh, the spaces that you may turn to, the relationships that you may turn to, uh, mm-hmm. that nourish you, that sustain you, that, that animate this work that, that you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's critically important. Um, I was just thinking as you were talking there about Howard Thurman, he says, um, at the center of every person, there is an island. And on that island, at the center of that island, there is an altar. And on that altar, there is a flame. And um, Thurman understood the contemplative life, the life of prayer, to be about the work of tending that flame, right? What, like, what is it that keeps you going? What's, um, what's the fire at the heart of who you are? Um, uh, for, for me... Um, prayer is a big part of that. The rhythm of morning and evening prayer becomes a way of kind of um, rooting the day in the story of Scripture, in the story of the church, in the story of the spirits moving in the world. And, um, you know, it becomes a, I think it becomes a whole uh, understanding, like a practice of the understanding of who we are. I'm curious what your prayer on the morning of Wednesday, November the 4th might look like? So my prayer is that we can find a way toward redemption, true redemption, right? Redemption as, uh, uh, as a sort of, you know, restoration of ourselves to our humanity and uh, to a beloved community in which we can find ways to live together, not just because it's necessary, you know, in a limited space for people to be able to live together, but because life together is a gift and that life together, even with the people that we've been pitted against and demonized, you know, 
taught to demonize or people have demonized us. That as a matter of fact, uh, we would be better and we would be more of what God made us to be uh, if we could genuinely encounter one another, know one another in the fullness of our humanity. And, um, and I believe that's what beloved community is. So that's my prayer on November 4th and on every day until then, frankly. Yeah. May God hasten that day. That's a, a good word for us to end on. All right, folks, that's it for our first ever second pour of the Mourner's Bench. Thank you once again for listening. Do you have questions, comments, feedback, or do you have topics you want us to discuss in the future? Email what's up at the theolab.com to let us know. We would love to hear from you. We'll be back next Tuesday to talk about honoring the saints and honoring the ain'ts too. We'll talk about election day, the Supreme Court, and have an interview with Carlos Cardoza Orlandi. In the meantime, head on over to patreon.com slash the Theolab and give us a little love offering. It's never expected, but always welcomed and appreciated. See you next Tuesday. <laughs>